0: This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello, and welcome to Master the MRCPCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam, or just fancy brushing up on a need to know topic. In this episode, Dr. Maria Gogu, a senior clinical fellow at Great Ormond Street, we'll be interviewing Dr. Robert Robinson, one of the paediatric neurology consultants at GOSH, about infantile spasms. They will cover common clinical features, clinical assessment and useful investigations, as well as treatment, corresponding to the neurology section of the MRCPCH curriculum. We hope you enjoy the episode.
1: Hello, Robert. Thank you very much for accepting the invitation for today.
2: Hi, thanks for inviting me.
1: I will start asking you, what would you like people to get out of this podcast?
2: So I, I guess the primary thing I'd like people to be aware of is the existence of infantile spasms and to really think about spasms in infants presenting with unusual movements, particularly unusual movements in clusters, because I, I guess the biggest Concern is that spasms are missed, particularly early in their course. So I would just hope that people will think of spasms and therefore be more likely to recognize them if they present in unusual or subtle ways.
1: I have always thought that infantile spasms are an urgent neurological condition. Why is that?
2: So, infantile spasms are generally thought of as a fairly archetypal example of an epileptic encephalopathy. Now that the concept of an epileptic encephalopathy is still quite controversial, but it's essentially saying that the epileptic discharges themselves, as well as the seizures, are felt to be having an impact on the child's cognitive and developmental outcome. And it follows from that that early treatment and improvement of seizures and the EG is likely to have a positive outcome on longer term, both development and seizure outcome. Now, if that is correct, then there is an urgency to treat in the sense that the longer the seizures and the EG abnormalities are left untreated the greater the potential impact on both developmental and seizure outcome is likely to be. There is some evidence to support that, but I would just highlight the fact that it is still quite controversial and it is difficult to quantify exactly the impact of both e.g., abnormalities and seizures themselves on the longer term outcome. And it is still more likely that other factors are probably more important, which we'll probably talk about, but there is general agreement that gaining early control of seizures and starting treatment as soon as possible will improve the longer-term outcome.
1: I see. So it's crucial to recognize infantile spasm. I think most people, most healthcare professionals are familiar with infantile spasm, manifesting as uh, flexions or extensions of truncal and proximal muscle. However, in some cases, immunology can be really variable. So could you please give us some examples?
2: Yes. So, so spasms can be very subtle, particularly early in the course of the condition. So they may present as what appear to be just subtle jerks of the limbs or subtle head nods which may only be apparent in certain positions. So if the child's lying down, they may be be less apparent. If the child's sitting up, they may be more obvious, but they can be very subtle. They may occur as isolated events early on in the course and only later start to occur in clusters, which may then give a clue to, to, to what they actually are. They can be quite asymmetrical. so. They may appear to involve only one side of the body or one side of the body more than the other in the early stages, which may put people off the idea of, that these may be infantile spasms. So I think the subtlety, the initial appearance of little jerks, the asymmetry can all be features that may put people off the idea of infantile spasms in the early stages.
1: So diagnosis is mainly clinical. Can EEG support diagnosis and any other investigations?
2: So the suspicion of the diagnosis is certainly clinical early on. And as I said earlier, unless you suspect it, you won't make the diagnosis. And there are certainly situations where the clinical assessment of the episode is fairly clear cut and most people would agree that there is little doubt that these are spasms but in pretty much all cases we would want to support the diagnosis with an EEG and when doing an EEG it's important generally to capture sleep as well as wake because the EEG abnormalities may be more apparent or occasionally only apparent during sleep and that's non-REM sleep but we would expect there to be e.g., abnormalities in a child with infantile spasms and those e.g., abnormalities are generally described as hypsarrhythmia and what hypsarrhythmia means is a lack of rhythm, a lack of order, a general chaotic appearance, usually with high amplitude background activity, which is often quite slow, with superimposed multifocal epileptiform discharges, which are often apparent whether or not the child is having seizures at the time, but are often more clearly seen in non-REM sleep. The other thing we would expect to see if, if spasms do occur during the EG, the typical finding is a so-called electrode decrement, which means that this high amplitude background activity essentially becomes flatter with some superimposed fast activities, which corresponds with the child having the the clinical spasm. So some EEGs will have all of those features, and there is no doubt about the diagnosis, but quite often, not all of those abnormalities will be present. For example, there may be some asymmetry in the EEG, or the background epileptical activity may not be as high amplitude, but In general, if the clinical events are consistent with infantile spasms and the EEG shows significant abnormalities, including epileptiform discharges, that is usually sufficient to make the diagnosis. If the EEG was completely normal, both in wake and sleep, then I would be very suspicious that these are not infantile spasms and I would be reluctant to treat without at least repeating the EG after a few days to confirm that there have been some abnormalities that have evolved because a completely normal EG would not really be consistent with infantile spasms.
1: Thank you for clarifying that because it was one of my questions. If we can have spasm with a completely normal EG, so I understand that in that case we might wait and get another EEG
2: into your course. Sure. I think it is feasible that very early in the, in, in the course, it may be difficult to pick up some EEG abnormalities, but as long as you include sleep, non-REM sleep, and if it remains completely normal, say after three to four days of these episodes occurring, then I think you can pretty much exclude infantile spasms.
1: And when we examine a baby with infantile spasms, what is really useful from a clinical examination point of view?
2: So like any child presenting with with early onset seizures, it's important to look both at the developmental aspects of, of the child and any specific neurological abnormalities, which may include some focal abnormalities in terms of movement or tone in one area or generalized abnormalities such as hypotonia. I would certainly want to include head circumference to determine whether the head growth has been appropriate. I would want to look at visual behavior because visual interaction is often affected with the onset of spasms. But another very important area to look at is the skin. And this is when we're thinking about possible underlying etiologies of infantile spasms, and that would be tuberous sclerosis. And therefore, we would want to examine carefully for particularly any hypopigmented macules on the skin, which would give an indication of potential tuberous sclerosis. And it is always best to do this with a woods light, which is an ultraviolet light, which will show up hypopigmented macules much more clearly than natural light. Another part of the general examination would be looking for any distinctive features, as infantile spasms can be associated with chromosomal abnormalities such as Down syndrome and other genetic syndromes for which there may be clues in the general appearance of the child. I would also want to be alert to the possibility of any metabolic disorders so there may be clues such as hepatosplenomegaly or skin abnormalities that may point towards a metabolic disorder.
1: Yeah, that's very useful. And what about the medical history? Are there any aspects which are particularly significant when we take history from the parents or carers of a baby within infantile spasms?
2: So again, thinking of the, the possible underlying causes of which there are many, but one Significant group of children would be those with a early hypoxic ischemic brain injury. So birth history and pregnancy history and early neonatal history are very important to determine if there are any indications of an early hypoxic ischemic insult. Also antenatal or perinatal strokes. So again, there may be some evidence pointed towards that from the early history. I think it's important to to ask about the developmental history prior to the onset of the spasms because there are many causes of infantile spasms in which there will be some early developmental delay prior to the onset of spasms, whereas in some other causes, the development is reported to be normal until the onset of spasms when there may be then plateauing or even developmental regression. So. Early developmental history is important. Family history, as in all children with epilepsy is important as there are many genetic causes of epilepsy, including some which can present with different severities in different family members. So any other family member with a history of epilepsy or developmental delay may be relevant to the diagnosis in this child.
1: Okay. So developmental assessment is a really significant factor. And what about neuroimaging? Do we have to request an MRI scan for all babies with infantile spasms?
2: The simple answer is yes. So any child presenting with seizures in the first year of life and infantile spasms generally present between three and 12 months should have neuroimaging. So the reasons for doing an MRI would be looking for possible clues in etiology. So there may be evidence of an early hypoxic ischemic brain injury or a perinatal stroke. There may be evidence of a developmental brain abnormality, such as a a neuronal migration disorder, where the brain has developed in an unusual way, or there is an abnormal development of the cortex. The other important reason for doing an MRI is to look for focal abnormalities and in particular focal cortical dysplasias, which are developmental abnormalities affecting usually a specific area of the brain. And these are a common area for seizure onset in a number of different epilepsy presentations. But it's important to realize that infantile spasms, although these Will often appear very generalized, and the EEG will usually be generalized. Even if there are no focal elements to the seizures themselves or to the EEG, it is still possible that there is a focal underlying abnormality, such as an area of focal cortical dysplasia. And in this case, early surgery may be the most effective treatment option. So it's important not to miss surgically treatable causes of infantile spasms, which we see not infrequently.
1: That's really important, yeah. And although sometimes infantile spasms can be very typical, there is a number of other situations which need to be differentiated, like satiric attacks, for example, in a baby or gastroesophageal reflux. What do you think? Is it difficult in some cases?
2: Yeah, so because spasms can present quite subtly early on, they can be mistaken for other causes of abnormal movements or other abnormal movements can be mistaken for spasms. And as you said, shuddering attacks can sometimes look like spasms. Benign myoclonus, particularly benign sleep myoclonus, so these are, are jerks that occur often in infants as they drop off to sleep or wake up or even during sleep, they can sometimes have a similar appearance to early spasms. Colic is a kind of classic differential diagnosis, I guess. So a child presenting with recurrent episodes of colic can sometimes have similar movements to infantile spasms. But I, to be honest, I'd be more concerned the other way around, that a child with infantile spasms is mistaken to, mm-hmm. to have colic. That's probably yeah. the greater concern. And there are some other... Benign movements seen in, in, in infants, I mean, even a, a marked Moro reflex can sometimes look like a spasm, but it should be fairly easy to to differentiate between something that is provoked by a movement and something that occurs spontaneously, particularly once it's occurring in clusters.
1: And what about treatment? I mean, the standard treatment is the combination of vigopatrin and steroid, the gold standard, we would say. I would like to ask whether we necessarily have to start all babies on this combination from the very beginning, or is there any room perhaps for individualization in the treatment?
2: Yeah. So you're right, the treatment in infantile spasms have been looked at quite extensively and probably investigated more than treatment for most other specific epilepsy syndromes. And that partly reflects the, the importance of early treatment and you know, the early evidence, particularly from studies like the the UKIS study, which was the UK infertile spasm study, showed that of the two main treatments, which are essentially steroids or other hormonal treatments and Vigabatrin, that steroids in general are more effective than Vigabatrin, although both treatments can be very effective. And then the, the subsequent study called the ICIS study, International Collaborative Infantile Study, looked at whether combination therapy with both steroids and Vigobacterin used at the same time were more effective than single therapy with steroids. And it was shown that combination therapy at the onset produces an earlier cessation of seizures than, than monotherapy with steroids alone. So In the majority of cases, we would recommend combination therapy as soon as the diagnosis is made with high-dose prednisolone, which is used predominantly in the UK. In other countries, they, they use ACTH, which is given intramuscularly. But whichever steroid we use, we would recommend that is given in combination with Vigabatrin. Now, there are some specific situations where we would alter that. The main one is tuberous sclerosis. So if a Diagnosis of tuberous sclerosis is made, then there is some evidence that vigabatrin is more effective as monotherapy in the initial stages. So, if a diagnosis of TS is confirmed, we would usually start with vigabatrin as single therapy. But if there has not been response, usually after a week, we would then still add in steroids. The other situation where we would potentially avoid steroids is if there are particular contraindications to steroids. So in, in some children with more complex disorders, perhaps with cardiac involvement, where there may be some concerns about using steroids or with an immune deficiency, for example, then we may avoid steroids and use Vigabatrin alone in the initial stages and then potentially add in steroids if indicated. I guess the, the other reason that sometimes Vigabatrin may be avoided early on is in a child who has got a known visual impairment preceding the onset of spasms, there may sometimes be justification in holding off on vigabatrin because if steroids or hormonal treatments were effective alone, then it may be possible to avoid vigabatrin and the potential longer-term visual field deficits. But as I say, in most situations, we would use combination therapy at the onset.
1: So, yeah, there are still some individual features which can be considered when deciding which treatment to start sure. in these babies. And what about other adverse events from steroids and vigopathy?
2: Yeah. So it's very important when starting these treatments that we do have a detailed discussion with the parents about the side effects of both these drugs. So steroids, as is commonly known, particularly high-dose steroids, have a number of important side effects that need to be monitored, particularly hypertension and increased blood glucose levels. And we would generally recommend at least weekly blood pressure and urine dipstick measurements for glucose to monitor these whilst the child is on steroids. There is the impact on susceptibility to infection, which we would always warn parents about, and particularly chickenpox. So if a child has not had chicken pox, then it's important that parents are alert to any potential contacts with chicken pox so that treatment can be initiated early. Other potential effects of, of steroids, such as weight gain, gastric irritation. And we would normally prescribe a concomitant anti reflux medication. And I guess the other important thing always to say with steroids is, is the importance of not stopping them abruptly, even if the child is unwell, which is why, at any signs of illness or difficulties of feeding, we would always recommend that the child is seen by someone medical locally so that, if necessary, they can be given parenteral steroids to cover the inability to take oral steroids. So most parents will be given information about steroids to carry with them and also to alert any other health professionals who see the child if they become acutely unwell. With Vigabatrin, there are some early side effects like lethargy, sometimes irritability, which are similar to other anti-epilepsy medications and generally not a concern. The main concern with Vigabactrin is the risk of longer term visual field deficits and this is a, this is particularly loss of peripheral vision. The evidence is that the risk of this is very low probably for treatment for six months or less and then the risk is related to the duration and dosage of treatment. So the longer a child is treated the higher the risk of developing visual field deficits is. The important thing is that if they do develop, they are thought to be irreversible. But in general, we feel that the risk is low in children, particularly for six months of treatment, but probably even for a year of treatment, we can be generally fairly reassuring that the risk is low. But we would avoid longer-term treatment with Vigabactrin if possible, and our aim would always be to try and wean a child off, usually between six months and a year of treatment and substituting for alternative treatments if needed. The other thing to mention with Vigabatrin is that there is a proportion of children who develop some imaging abnormalities, usually affecting the basal ganglia, thalamus, brainstem. These can be completely clinically silent and generally resolve once the Vigabatrin is stopped. So we are usually fairly reassuring if these abnormalities are seen. Some children do develop some movement disorders, some abnormal movements such as dystonic or dyskinetic movements on Vigabatrin. But again, these are usually short-term and will resolve when the Vigabatrin is stopped, unless they are related to the underlying etiology of the infantile spasms, in which case there is another reason why a child may have abnormal movements in which case they won't stop when the vagabactrian is withdrawn.
1: So I understand there are adverse events which can be reversible and transient and also adverse events which can be irreversible, but it appears that they are rather infrequent and yes. perhaps it's something and to be communicated.
2: To. Yes, so I think it's important to alert parents to this, but also to be as, as reassuring as possible and also to highlight the fact that early treatment of the spasms is important for long-term outcome and therefore, concerns about potential side effects have to be weighed against the risks of not adequately treating the infantile spasms as early as possible.
1: You said early, so I would like to ask you, how long can one wait before starting treatment for infantile spasms without a significant loss from a brain development point of view? Is there a time
2: window? So we can't say with certainty that there is a particular time window, although, as I mentioned earlier, there is some evidence that early treatment is associated with better outcomes than delayed treatment. Now, by early, generally we are talking about days rather than weeks. So I think any child... In whom there is a suspicion of infantile spasms should be investigated with an EEG, ideally within two to three days, in order that treatment can be started within that timescale. I would generally want to avoid waiting more than a week before initiating treatment if infantile spasms are suspected. So the aim should be to make a diagnosis and to initiate treatment as soon as possible, but certainly within less than a week and ideally two or three days.
1: Okay. And what's the outcome of infantile stasis How can we counsel those families regarding the more long-term outcome of their baby?
2: So we do know that there is a high incidence of both long-term neurodevelopmental impairments, as well as longer-term epilepsy with infantile spasms. Now, the figures quoted for developmental outcomes is probably that 80 to 90% of children will have some developmental impairment, although that can range from severe neurodisability to milder cognitive or motor difficulties but the vast majority of children will have some impairment developmentally. Now, that is partly related, we feel, to early diagnosis and treatment, but probably the most important factor in determining outcome is the underlying etiology, and therefore making a diagnosis of a hypoxic ischemic brain injury or developmental brain disorder or particularly genetic cause, of which there are many, is probably the stronger determinant of longer-term developmental outcome. Although, as I said, treatment is, is an important factor. The other question about outcome relates to seizures. And again, there is a relatively high risk of children going on to have other seizure types in later childhood and in adulthood. The spasms themselves often do resolve perhaps over a few months or a year if they are resistant to treatment, but then may evolve into other seizure types. And one of the commoner uh, epilepsy syndromes that may evolve at a later stage is Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, which is one of the more difficult epilepsy syndromes of childhood involving usually tonic and atonic seizures and atypical absences, usually associated with developmental impairment as well. So although a high proportion of children will have both developmental impairment and longer-term seizures, the strongest determinant is etiology And the group of children that often do better than expected are those for which no cause is identified. So if investigation is done and nothing is identified as an underlying cause, that's generally good news because those children tend to fall in the the group with a better outcome.
1: And most people use the term West syndrome when talking about infantile spasm, which is not now the case and the ILA recent classification has introduced the term of infantile epileptic spasm syndrome, as well as possible evolving syndrome. So could you explain briefly the significance of those things?
2: Yeah. So wet syndrome was traditionally used to describe the classic presentation of the combination of infantile spasms associated with developmental plateauing or developmental regression and the classic changes of hypsarrhythmia on EG. So that trio of of clinical features was described as West syndrome, and it was described by a GP called West, who described the syndrome in his own child. The reason that West syndrome is not used so much now, and the ILE produced the concept of infantile spasm syndrome, is really to encompass the variations. So those children who may present with infantile spasms, but may not have such obvious developmental plateauing, particularly early on in the onset of the epilepsy, or they may not have all of the typical EEG features that would constitute hypsarrhythmia, but still have the significant EEG abnormalities. The concept of infantile spasm syndromes is essentially saying that those children who don't have all of the features, but have Spasms associated with significant EEG abnormalities and perhaps milder developmental plateauing should still be considered as having infantile spasms or infantile spasm syndrome and therefore should still be treated in a similar way to those children presenting with the classic triad. So it's really a broadening of the diagnostic criteria to incorporate the children with some atypical features, but to ensure that they all get treated aggressively and early
1: and it has a clinical impact uh, from this point of view.
2: Yes, because so, it, it ensures that, that children are not missed in terms of yeah. diagnosis and treatment.
1: And now some quickfire questions. Are there any classic exam questions that pop up about this subject?
2: So I think that there are often questions focused on infantile spasms, particularly around the the importance of clinical history and the examination really targeted at trying to identify the, the possible etiologies, as we've discussed. So, so looking for features like early hypoxic injury or stroke and looking for features of tuberous sclerosis. So that is a fairly typical question.
1: Are there any useful resources that you would recommend for infantile spades?
2: So I think there are guidelines such as the the NICE guideline, which incorporate treatment protocols for infantile spasms. And I, I think another very good resource is actually the ILAE website, so the International League Against Epilepsy, which does have the key papers which describe the evolution of these syndromes, including infantile spasms but also have very good summaries of the diagnostic criteria, many of the important etiologies and important aspects of assessment. So I think the ILAE classification papers can be very useful clinical resources in terms of being able to diagnose these conditions. And then I guess in terms of of treatment, I think it is definitely worth looking at the, the ICIS paper, the original ICIS paper, which I think was published in The Lancet in 2007, I think, which describes the clear benefit of combined therapy when compared to to single therapy. And there are ongoing publications coming out of the IKIS study looking at longer-term developmental outcomes. So far, that has been a little bit disappointing in the sense that there hasn't been clear evidence that the Developmental outcomes are better with combination therapy, and there may be reasons why that has not been so apparent, but there is still enough supporting evidence that early treatment and early aggressive treatment is beneficial to say we should be using combination therapy in most children.
1: And finally, what are your three takeaway learning points from this podcast?
2: So, I guess the first is the the point that I made at the beginning about the importance of thinking about spasms and being suspicious and realizing that they can present in quite subtle or unusual ways. And it is still disappointing how often spasms are missed in the early stages, and sometimes children who are brought, you know into any, perhaps two or three times. And these movements are diagnosed as colic or some other movement. So I think the most important thing is being suspicious of spasms and always thinking about them in an infant presenting with with unusual movements. I guess another key thing is to remember that there can be focal structural abnormalities in children presenting with infantile spasms, even if they don't have any obvious focal features, sometimes they will, but they may have completely generalized looking spasms and generalized EGs, but there may still be a, a focal cortical dysplasia, in which case early surgery may be very beneficial. So not missing the possibility. And then I guess the third point is really the growing importance of genetic investigations. So many of those children that would previously have been classified with so-called idiopathic infantile spasms, a term which is no longer used, we are Discovering increasing amounts of genes that can present with infantile spasms. And therefore, I think early genetic investigation with both microarray and exome or genome sequencing is becoming increasingly important because genetic diagnosis not only avoids the need sometimes for lots of other investigations, but is probably going to become increasingly important in determining early treatment, and that's already the case with tuberous sclerosis, but other genetic epilepsies are now directing us towards specific treatments, and that will probably become the case in mental spasms as well. So I think early genetic diagnosis is, is important.
1: Thank you very much, Robert, and I hope that people will enjoy our discussion.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode, or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.